Well, thanks everyone for being here again. My name is Rich and I'm one of the co-lead pastors. I have the privilege of introducing our uh, guest speaker today. And uh, in your bulletin has a little write-up about her um, and talks about uh, what she does in White Center. She is the executive director of the Yes Foundation. Her name is Pat Thompson and she uh, just is, I, I've been trying to think of the best way to introduce her. I've known Pat for close to 30 years and uh, the thing that stuck out when we were coming up with this series, the impact of the resurrection, and particularly the topic of race and place, the reason why Pat came to me first is because in order to understand place and the issues that come about it with regards to race is you have to live and breathe and know your neighborhood. You have to know your community. And there is no one in my life that knows their community the way Pat does. And I, I thought about it because there's a long time where I always used to think of her as the queen of White Center and Burien. And I realized in talking with her again and again that that actually isn't the best picture because when I think of like king and queen, I think of them like up here and they may be for the people, but they are not in and involved with the people. Pat is living and breathing and in that community everywhere she goes she knows people she knows their story she cares for them and her organization the yes foundation does all these phenomenal things um, to partner with all these other organizations to care well for everyone in that neighborhood um, and as a result those stories both of place and the ethnic diversity that she experiences on a daily basis make her uh, just the best to have to speak with us today. So if you would please do me the honor of giving her a nice round of applause. Welcome, Pat Thompson. Oh, look at that. <laughs> so good. Thank you. Is it just going to turn on? It's nice to be here. I'm really, really, really happy to be here. Whenever Rich, Rich's name comes up on my um, cell phone, I don't ever um, screen you. I promise I don't. Sometimes I don't answer, but I never screen you. But um, whenever he call, whenever his name com comes up on my uh, cell phone, the answer is yes. It's always yes. Same as when I'm in a restaurant and the server comes by and says, ma'am, would you like more coffee? I say yes. It's always yes. So um, I'm happy to be here. I was excited when he told me about the series that um, y'all have been going through and just kind of some of the conversations that you're having um, and then also that one of the Sundays, the conversation would be a question around um, the, the question of race. And what impact does the resurrection have on the way we think and, and move through issues of race? And, um, and you think, well, why do we need to move through issues of race, right? Why can't we just skip it? It's easier just to not talk about it, right? However, the news is crazy these days, isn't it? I mean, it's just nuts every single day it's something it's something at starbucks it's whatever's happening with immigrants and and daca and whatever uh immigration and customs enforcement is up to you know that's i mean it's breaking news every single second um and of course black lives matter right and i have to say um i don't think it's good for us to be sitting in front of this cnn i'm a sucker though i sometimes i just can't I can't pull myself away, and so I have to, I have to practice some sort of discipline there. But, um, you know, I just think that 
among so many other ways that it just it's, it can be crazy making. The, the, the sad part about it is that, um, you know, oftentimes when I'm watching CNN or whatever I'm watching, I feel like this is a big fat mirror in front of me of who we are, who we are becoming. And it's, it's kind of scary. So this is why I think we need to go for it. We need to kind of go in and, and um, talk about, talk through, fight through these issues of race. I one time posted a video on my Facebook page. Um, it was about what Christopher Columbus and what happened to the indigenous peoples when he got here. And it started some conversation. It was just, I, you know, I just really thought it was just a video. It wasn't really, I didn't see it as being, um, um, you know, just a bad or even just huge or dramatic or whatever. But this guy that I went to high school with, and we were pretty close friends, he just posted. He goes, well, those people need to get over it, you know. And I'm like, uh, yikes. So, you know, they just need to let it go. And I think, um, you know, and this person, he's, he's a pretty nice guy. He's just, he's, he's just tired of it, right? And I just think, you know, we have to, we as Christians, as people who love God, we have to come up with something better than that. I think in light of that, um, now more than ever, being honest about the way that we have treated one another and the way that we treat each other now, um, you know, then being able to look at those, look at that honestly, and then making a commitment to one another to fix it, to repent, to correct course, right? But it, it involves us being being truly, truly honest. I, I just think that when we do that, um, this is an expression of shalom, you know, true shalom. So, you know, on that note, let me just pray for us. Can I pray for us? Lord God, thank you so much for these um, folks here and just the privilege it is to um, have conversations with your people. And so we, um, I'm not just inviting you here. I just, I, we need you here. And so um, as boldly as I can to you, God, I'm, I'm summoning you, please, just to be in it with us. Don't, let, don't leave us alone. And for whatever comes out today, God, you do with it what you need to do. And then whatever was, is not useful to your kingdom, just, I'm okay, we're okay if you just let it sort of dissipate into the air. So, God, thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for our lives. Thank you that, um, that you're with us and for your presence, God, and for your faithfulness and your commitment to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, just being honest with one another and being able to say, you know, this is hard, but we're going to do it. I believe that that's, a, that's an expression of shalom to one another, true shalom. And what I mean by that is um, uh, in Cornelius Plantinga's book, he said, not the way it's supposed to be, um, he paints a picture of shalom as this. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are employed. That's pretty wordy, right? Pretty good, though. Terry McGonigal, who's an author and a professor and actually a friend of mine, gives an excellent description as well of shalom by simply stating this. 
it is the way God designed the universe to be. Right? So this is what we seek together, right? Um, in Acts 6, um, does it just go up? <laughs> this is my magic. In Acts 6, um, I love this. Uh, I'll go ahead and read, and read it. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and great and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give and will give them attention, our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man of man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and large number of priests became obedient to faith. So um, I'm, I'm going to kind of do this if this is okay with you. Oftentimes when we read, well, we do this all the time when I'm with teenagers, somebody will read, and then I have somebody else break it down. So we, we say somebody reads it, and then somebody regurgitates it. So there's the read and the regurge. <laughs> so does anybody kind of want to regurge that right now? Anybody feeling like they want to just sort of tell us about what's going on there? Yes. So they came. They came up. They they came together and came up with a plan. Right. That's good. And deacons were born. <laughs> Anybody else want to add to that? Thank you very much. kind of gave value to these folks who are marginalized, right? Just to make sure they had what they needed. Good, thank you. Yeah. 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 Good. Everybody hear that? Yeah? Thank you. 
Yes, go ahead, sir. Right, so you're saying that um, there was something already intact, it just wasn't working. Or for some reason, it wasn't getting, yeah, there was a breakdown. That's good, thank you everybody, that was really good. I think, um, gosh, all right answers. I had never really thought of that one, that um, the way that they sort of gave value to the social needs was pretty important, right? Um, what I was thinking as well, sir, was that um, it was also an issue of race, of this ethnic ethnic thing that was happening and I'm so encouraged aren't you encouraged this was happening in the first church the first Christians didn't get it right the first Christians had to be confronted right are you excited about that because I don't know I know you guys got a good church but our church isn't perfect I'm hoping yours isn't right and so I think that I'm so happy they put this in there so that we could see hey you're going to mess up it's okay, but what you re- you do need somebody that's going to look out, that's looking out for the poor, that's looking out for the marginalized, and that's going to come to the power and say, "Dude, you guys got to fix this because this ain't right, right? Because there's people that is not getting what you're giving, right?" And so I was so like I almost did a dance when I saw that. Like, yay, they were messed up too, you know. <laughs> It's been around since the very beginning. So what I'd like for us to do right now is just, let's all just take a good deep breath. I promise, we're not going to go super deep today. We're really not. I'm not going to get in your business too bad. And if I do, it's not really that big of a deal because you don't know me. (laughs) And you're not going to see me. And, you know, maybe another couple years. It's been a couple years since I've been here. But, you know, if you you don't like it, just tell him and I, I won't come back. Anyway, so... You know, but I promise it's, we're not going to get too, too big, deep in there. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about race. We're going to talk a little bit about place. And then um, about seeking shalom with God and with one another. And since it's Earth Day, a little bit with creation too. I like to, um, my big thing right now is four verbs. I got four ber- verbs working for me. It's breathe, hydrate, stretch, and pray. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. That's that's what the 54-year-old is trying to do these days. So, Okay, I have a question for you. Can you remember um, the first time, the very first time you were made aware of race in your own life? Can you remember the moment when you realized there was something that was going to cause a barrier between me and other people, or me and my friends, or that there was something going on on the playground maybe that you just knew uh, there's something different going on. Can you remember that? Yeah. Thank you. Huh. Right. Good. Good. 
you. Thank you for sharing that. So that was something, before you even left the home, it was there. Thanks for sharing. Anybody else? Did you all hear what he said? Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. Nice! <laughs> It's so good, so great. Thank you. Yeah. So um, for me, um, I, I, there's two two instances that sort of are huge uh, in my mind. And one was when I was in kindergarten. I'm the youngest of my family, so I'm the last to go to school and super excited, right? And so, um, but one of my first memories is of being on the on the uh, playground with all the other cute little um, kindergartners and this uh, girl, cute girl. She's a cute one. She had this cute little haircut, and she was this tiny little, very fair um, skinned girl who had a cute little voice. And um, but every day she used to call me the, the N word on, on the playground every day, right? As <laughs> a kindergarten. And I came home and I asked my sister what what that meant, and um, she she kind of fumbled around. I don't even think she told me, but she did say, "Don't tell Dad that that's happening." And so that was the first thing. I was sick because my dad could take care of some stuff. <laughs> the, the second thing is um, there was a kid on my street, so I live on a dead end, and um, there was a kid on my street, and he, their family just, they, they had some issues. And so they didn't have any friends on our block anyway. And um, he was kind of a, a terrorist. I mean, I would walk, I had to walk by his, his house to get to school. And um, he also just had a, had a pretty uh, toxic vocabulary that he would just hurl at us, at me, because I was 
the littlest, but I think it finally stopped because um, my brother went up there. My brother was in high school and he could also take care of some stuff. So it stopped. But you know, that's kind of my first, unfortunately, those two incidents are connected to my school memories, right? Because uh, the kid down, down in the street used to do that on my way to and from school. So those are my, kind of. that's my earliest memory that said, oh, I'm different, there's something going on here. As Rich said earlier, I'm from White Center. I live there still, um, except for this eight to 10 years that it took me to finish college. No, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. That was just a bachelor's degree. <laughs> Don't do it that way. It was expensive, too. <laughs> but ex except for those years, I have lived all my life in White Center. My parents came to Seattle in the late 50s um, from American Samoa. They bought a home um, in White Center in 1961, and that's where I live now. Um, I have four siblings. The three oldest were born in Samoa, and my sister and I were born here. So I, my dad passed away in 1998. My mom passed away a couple years ago. My sister and I were taking care of my mom for those years, and so now we live in the, the home where we grew up, right? I was telling Rich this, this is crazy, and I know that you guys all know this because property values are intense, right? And so my parents bought that house for $10,000 in 1960. It was appraised for yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? And so, you know, it's just, and I say that as part of, you know, this whole thing that that's, you know, it just is, it is hard to make a living out there for anybody, right? And so my sister and I, we're, we're okay because, um, you know, we're, we're going to be able to take care of stuff, take care of taxes, but there have already people who are being priced out of my neighborhood, not because they couldn't have the, they already had the house, but they couldn't afford the taxes, right? And so these are all mostly families of color and older people that are forced out of their homes, okay? Okay, just bookmark there. When I was growing up in White Center, it was predominantly white, a blue collar neighborhood. A lot of the people on my block worked for Boeing at the time, including both of my parents. When I was in elementary school, I knew that, um, there was one Chinese family, that was the Mar family. They lived across the street from me. Two Filipino families, the Umlins and the Gamitos. Two Mexican families, the Lopez's and the Benavides's. One Samoan family, that was us. Uh, one African-American family, the Joneses. And two native families, the Damon family and the Sam family. Quite a bit different um, than it is now. The neighborhood schools in, um, in our community are all 80 to 80, 88% free and reduced lunch now. Um, there's like 70 different countries represented in all those schools. 44% um, of all the children in my neighborhood go home to a home where um, there's a language other than English being spoken. Uh, I know elementary kids, elementary school kids who handle three to four different languages on a daily basis. They're speaking three to four different languages, right? Um, because two of the elementary schools in my neighborhood are dual language immersion schools. So um, there's Spanish being spoken at one school and Vietnamese being spoken at another school. Almost 20 years ago, um, I, I and a couple friends of mine founded the Yes Foundation. 
and we serve children, youth, and families. So when I started it, all my volunteer work had been in youth, um, just youth ministry. I was I met that group of folks over there <laughs> at Lakeside Bible Camp doing youth work, just goofing around with teenagers. So all of my, whatever I was doing was being done with teenagers, right? So that's what, why we started the Yes Foundation. But I realized if you do, if you want to do good youth work in a neighborhood like White Center, you have to do good little kid work because all the youth have those brothers and sisters, and some of them have their own children, right? So if you want to do good youth work, you got to do good little kid work. If you want to do good little kid work, you got to do good family work, right? You gotta, if you want to do good family work, you got to do good community work. So in my work at the Yes Foundation for the last 20 almost 20 years, I've become the thing that I never wanted to become, and that is a community development person. <laughs> I begged my board not to let it happen, but they said, sorry, that's where we're going. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's kind of a little bit of insight into um, the work that uh, the YES Foundation does. We, do, we have programs and fun stuff to do. Leader, we're into leader development. That's kind of at our heart. Um, we partner with all the schools. But one of the things that we do is we run a bike club. And um, it's really fun. Our kids have, for the last 10 years, our kids have ridden an STP. Um, have any of you done STP? Yeah. I drive it every year. <laughs> I go pick them kids up, and I get a t-shirt dog on it <laughs> that says I've done STP. <laughs> all, all the kids are like, when they find out they're going to do STP, they're like, Duh. Don't you got a car, Pat? I go. I got a cousin. I got a cousin. Maybe they'll lend me their car. We don't have to ride there. <laughs> but they do that, and there's other all kinds of rides over the years. So a, a few years ago, the Yes Foundation in the county, we King County, we partnered um, with a couple other organizations and built a bike playground at a neighborhood park at Lakewood Park in White Center, right next to Cascade Middle School. So it's this beautiful bike, it's a traffic garden is what it's called, and kids can come and you know, there's a little mock, uh, mock signs to sort of practice your bike skills. And it's really beautiful. It, was, um, it, it got put on top of what used to be um, a tennis court that was in shoddy condition. I used to take my dog there so he could do stuff. <laughs> I picked it up though, I promise to goodness, I picked it up. So anyway, it just, we just re renovated the space, right? When we went to do the, um, the dedication of this bike traffic pro, um, playground for the neighborhood, we we're gonna do it up, you know, big celebration. And I thought, hey, uh, I think, this is literally the way the thought went through my head. I'm kinda sure, I'm kinda thinking that Duwamish, this is Duwamish property here, that it was one time Duwamish, maybe we could, Bring somebody in and, I don't know, do a blessing or something like that. It was, it was, I promise, it was that flip, right? And so I said it, and right, but that was how I thought about it. When it came out of my mouth, I thought, that sounds so lame, what I just said. I'm just going to call a guy from some tribe I don't know a thing about. I'm going to ask him to come bless this thing that they had nothing to do with. We didn't ask them. We didn't bring them into the process. We didn't say, hey, we're gonna build the traffic garden in a park. By the way, I know that the park is Duwamish land. We never asked you for the park, and then I never asked you for the playground, but I'm asking you to come. It'd be nice if you brought a drum. 
and said a little blessing for us. Wouldn't that be nice? Sometimes I just am so shocked at my own just arrogance and stupidity, right? So luckily, I caught myself miraculously, and it was God. I'm sure it's God who often holds my tongue. And I, I kind of backed it up, and I went to a, a woman who I serve on a board with, and she is Native. And I said, Tanya, she works for Highland College. She is an advocate for Native students, right? I said, Tanya, um, I need your help. And so I just described to her this thing. And I described to her, because she's my friend, and she's, she was a safe person to have this conversation with. I said, this is what I would like to have happen. I told her. I go, but I'm acutely aware right now that that is the most backwards way to do it. And so what do you think? What shows the most respect to Duwamish people, to have a person from the tribe um, do it, or do I not even ask? And she said, no, Pat, let's ask. You know, I'll, I'll say, I'll put in a good word for you. And they'll want to come, because that's, that's what they do, right? And so I was still just a little bit, um, just, you know, just unsteady and just surprised that me, that I could think like this, or not think clearly like that. And so she asked somebody that she knew who works down at the Longhouse, which is where uh, there's a Duwamish Longhouse down near our house on East Marginal. And she got a hold of someone who teaches classes there and told them the situation. They said, of course, of course we'll come. Of course. Thank you for asking. So on the day of the, uh, of the dedication, a young man, he's probably 30 years old or something, he's a teacher and teaches young children about the culture, the Duwamish history and culture and music, all of it, art. And he came, and he, he, he came and sang. He, he did a chant and a prayer, and then he told us what he prayed. And this is what he prayed. He said, um, we're, happy that, um, we're happy that this is space where children will be happy and children will play. We're happy that this is a space where families will be together and enjoy the outdoors. We're happy. Please bless this space. That's what he said. Everybody says, still, every, every once in a while I run into someone who's there, they'll say, that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I go, yeah, me too. You know, and, and I just was so amazed by the grace of this person who belongs to a tribe. We are on land at that time that, that is Duwamish land, and he can still be there with open, hand, open arms and open heart and bless it for the generation to come. I just thought that that was amazing. I don't think I could do that. If somebody came to take my house and then asked me later to come and bless it for the people that are there, no. I would come with a lighter and bless it. <laughs> no one's feeling me right, wouldn't you? No, but there was just this grace that I witnessed that um, I'm gonna say it changed my, my heart and it changed my life even. Um, because I thought, I need that. I need that to me is shalom. I want you to, um, we're going to run a video right now. And this is something that I found um, like a month ago. Somebody posted it on Facebook. Why do many of my sentences in, in, involve that phrase? Somebody posted it on Facebook. <laughs> anyway, I watch it and I want to share it with you. 
Uh, I was only going to share part of it, but uh, Rich assured me that I have time, so we're going to see the whole thing. So go ahead. I'm Apache, but really that's the, the government's name because they can't say in there. They will tell me how awesome they think it is that I've decided to be a part of my culture. And it's funny to me, I'll, I'll, it like hits me really weird and I don't like it and I didn't know why at first, but it's because I haven't decided to be a part of my culture, I live it every day. I'm more comfortable with the term native, divorced from Native American. Um, I know there are people who use indigenous, and I, I, if there is one term I do not like to be called is American Indian. And for me, to be indigenous is to have an intimate and interconnected relationship to a homeland. And so that's really important because land is you know, tied to every aspect of who we are. Being, being native in a city um, is, is almost a daily reminder of, of your people's erasure, of the fact that people don't even remember that you're here and that you exist. But what I did encounter was just this preconceived notion that all Native Americans are dead. I've had older white men come up to me and say, oh man, if this was 40 years ago, I can just do whatever I wanted to you. You know, the cattle outside doing the work and the dog inside the house, those are property. Those are the black folks in America. They are property to white men. Then the exotic antelope on the wall, or the exotic, you know, that's the native, that's how natives are perceived in America. We're treated like animals. They're, they monitor our blood quantum. We're the only, I mean, besides dogs and horses, I don't know of any other animal that they monitor the blood quantum. The way I explain it to people is like, imagine a pizza with different slices and let's say 32 slices. Of the 32 slices, I'm 28 Apache. That's my particular blood quantum. And Native Americans in the US are the only minority group who have to prove their nativeness on an Indian card. It's used to divide Native people against each other because it can be used as a way to say, I am more native than you, and I was a part of that too. I used my four-fourths to kind of make myself feel better against other people. The one-drop rule meaning that, you know, one drop of black blood makes you black, you know, that was to keep as many people oppressed or, you know, legitimize their oppression um, as possible. But on the other side, one drop of anything else completely dilutes you as, an, as a native person. So if you're a native person, you have a one drop of something else, then suddenly you're less native. So it's the opposite. Traditionally, within the Apache society, you go by the mother. And if the mother's recognized as Apache, she has her clan, uh, the children are unquestionably Apache. Not in the American context, not when patriarchy trumps matriarchy. So what does that mean? My sisters are short 1 16th of a degree. What does that mean? Does that mean their pinkies aren't Apache? What does that mean? You know, being a mixed race person is a whole nother side of it, but that's a very common experience in our tribe. So it's not as if 
we're unusual in that way, what is unusual is the admixture of black. My grandfather actually doesn't want people, if he, if he hears that somebody from the tribe is coming over, he won't come out of his room because he doesn't want them to know that he's that complexion that he doesn't, I guess he doesn't want me to be affiliated with, with having African-American blood, but I mean, I say it. it it's not going to change anything. If it were up to the American government, natives wouldn't be around because after a certain time, that blood will dilute. It will go out. And so if there's no native peoples to provide benefits, then we're not obligated to meet these treaty rights. And if we're not obligated to meet these treaty contracts, then the land is available. The resources are available. And I think that that, that essential point about our claim to sovereignty, our claim to land, our claim to a culture, our claim to resources is one that gets lost if we if we don't insist upon the fact that we are nations. And we have taken huge steps to decolonizing, and that's, that proof comes from people being able to have the opportunities to speak their language, to be on their ancestral land. But the thing with decolonization is, is that it's, it's an ongoing process, just like grieving, just like any loss. As much as possible now, I try to tell people that I have a Native American name, and maybe it doesn't mean anything to you, but it means everything to me. My name maybe doesn't have a romanticized Hollywood Indian name, but my name has more meaning than that. My name means that my family survived. My family survived disease. My family survived Catholicism. My family survived settler colonialism, colonism, and my family, they survived. I survived. My existence is resistance. Me saying my name is Skiam Tolks, that is resistance in and of itself. So why did I show you that? Why did I bring that video today? You know why? I didn't know any of that. Before it landed on my Facebook page, I didn't know any of that. And when I mentioned the families before, the Damons and the Sam family, the Damon family and the Sam family, they were native, right? That is all that I know. I went to school with those kids from elementary through high school. And I can't tell you for sure that they're Duwamish. I'm assuming that. This is an assumption I'm making because most native people in our, neighbor, in our area are Duwamish, but I don't know. What, what is that? You know, you know, this is a video that's just fraught with stories of marginalization, erasure, genocide, um, oppression, racism, and you know, we we don't we don't have as people who love God, people who are committed to shalom. We can't disengage from that. We can't, right? And you know, because it's all information is just all available to us now. We don't even have an excuse not to know anymore, right? That's, that's gonna be on us, right? And so, um, I think what she said, um, my name is resistance, my name is my resistance. That, that's her survival, right? That is the work she's doing in Shalom. When I think about how we work at Shalom, because Shalom is gonna take some work, right? It's gonna take some undoing and unwinding and uh, 
dismantling. Um, and for her to say, my name is my resistance. My name is proof that I survived. That is how she brings shalom. And I, um, I want to say, I want to tell you about this quote that I found in a book called Community of Creation by Randy Woodley. He says, shalom is communal, holistic, and tangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom or there is no shalom. It kind of reminds me of Dr. Martin Luther King who said from a letter from the Birmingham City Jail. He said it this way. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatsoever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. It's impossible to achieve shalom if oppressive power dynamics are in place. It's on us to de deconstruct these power dynamics, and it can only be achieved if those that hold power are willing and able to listen to those who don't have power. You know, the other reason I wanted to sort of bring out the, the native story is, at least for me, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm wondering if that's the case out here, when I think of racism, I tend to always go to slavery. Right? I, I go there, every, that's the first place I go. Um, you know, what we, what go, we go to what happened in 1619 when the Dutch traders brought 20 plus Africans who'd been enslaved on a Spanish trip to what was then a British colony. And the reason I kind of included all those Dutch, Spanish, British, they were all in on it. They wasn't even complicit being in on it. They were actively in on it, right? And so I think the good news, if there is, there's what am I talking about? Something in there is that white supremacy was around before the United States of America. It wasn't Ku Klux Klan that started it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't those white people. It was always there. It was always, human nature was always gonna find this way to do that to another, to do that to other, to dehumanize. And so, in some respects, nobody, we can't let it, in some respects, we're off the hook. But in every other respect, we're not off the hook. I just, for, I don't know why, for some dumb reason, I did feel a little bit comforted that white supremacy was there in 1400 when the guy came over here and did that, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, what happened to, um, you know, when Columbus came here and the Spanish came here and did whatever they did and took the land and robbed everybody and killed folks, that was, that was happening before the slaves and before slavery was enacted, right? And I'm going to say the reason they were able to start slavery, the reason they were able to put slavery as, a, as part of the Constitution is because all this other stuff that happened. So all that to say, we have our work cut out for us. The work of anti-racism is big work, right? And I was listening to Pastor Greg's um, sermon from last week, and he talked about John 3.16, right? Ever, life everlasting. And I think that um, one of the things I loved that you said is that we live in this tension of the now and the not yet, right? That we, we live in this, hey, sometimes it's great, sometimes you can see heavens, you know, glimpses of heaven right here, right? And sometimes we, we think, Oh, we have to wait till we get to heaven for that. And that's the tension we all live with, right? I think also that in that um, life, ever, everlasting life, it also can be um, 
translated as, um, we live in an age and then the age to come when the Messiah is with us, right? But until then, we work for shalom on earth as it is in heaven, right? On earth as it, that's who we are called to be. That's what we are called to do. And so I'm going to, I think I'm over my time, aren't I? So I'm just going to leave you with this. Um, how do we do shalom? What does that look like? You know, you know, there are a couple things that she said that came up in the video that I thought was really good. Um, just saying her name. Just little, little place, places of resistance. Things that you can do. I asked Tanya, my friend who got the, the, the guy to come um, do that uh, opening for us. I asked her, what can we do? It's not like we can give the land back. We can't. I mean, that's just cookie talk. We can't. What can we do? And I, I really was kind of rhetorical. I didn't know she was going to come up with something. I was happy that she did. She said, she said, well, you know, the Duwamish Longhouse operates on donations. She said, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of native schools where kids need scholarships. So then it's got my mind thinking, you know, our hands are not as tied as we think they are. And so I think I'm going to leave you right there. Is the question up? I've got a little connection question for you. Does anybody have any comments right now? film. Um, I think it's really interesting the way they talk about land. Um, I don't think that like uh, being raised here in, in the States, I don't recall that land was part of, you know, kind of how my parents talked to us. But I do know that um, being, you know, those that were raised on the island see themselves as coming from the water. Right? Water is life. And that's the way they talk about land, right? That they come from the land. 
And I think it's really interesting to me because, you know, it's Earth Day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. Adam came from the dirt. And Eve came from Adam. So it's so, it seems so right to me, right? This, this healthy respect for land. And, um, and again, just being able to be in peace, shalom with God, with one another, and with and thank you very much. Thanks, Pat. Um, the worship team is going to give you a moment if you would like to respond to that question on your connection card. That'd be fantastic. It's always really helpful to hear how you're engaging with what's been taught. As you go, you can drop it in the wood box. Um, the band is going to take a moment to play just to give you some space to respond to that question um, and then in a few moments Brian will invite us to stand to sing one last song um, so I invite you just to take some time to respond